0: Brilliant. Okay, thanks. Yes, it's a, it's a pleasure to uh, be here and to participate in this meeting, which I think gives a very uh, interesting uh, collection of perspectives on uh, Alan Turing, whose centenary we're, we're celebrating. Um, Turing actually had very wide interest and made major contributions in a, in a wide range of fields, but certainly the central thing that he's... Um, I think his most important achievements line is his analysis of computation, the computational <coughs> model that he developed and the fundamental notions about computability uh, which he originated, which we've already heard about this morning and I'm going to continue on that <coughs> theme in my talk. And what I'll try and do is discuss um, uh, how that uh, analysis that he gave uh, looks in the modern era where it's subject to new challenges new kinds of experience as we've uh, come to really inhabit a universe of computation in a way that could hardly have been imagined at the time um, 75 years ago when he did this, uh, this foundational work. So in the modern era, um, how did Turing's ideas still stand up? Um, so that's what I'd like to look at. Um, and uh, in particular, I want to look at two different aspects of this. Uh, the first one is... Um, But as we heard, uh, Turing's ideas um, were focused on the issue of um, things from mathematics that we can compute, uh, problems that we can solve in mathematics, computing numbers, computing functions and so on. Um, But now our notion of computation has broadened enormously using the internet, social media as we were hearing about earlier today and many other things. And in this wider world of computation. Uh, how does Turing's analysis of computation still stand? Does it still look definitive? And the other point, also mentioned um, uh, before lunch in in, in John's talk, is that um, the connection between computation and physics is currently something that people are thinking about from a number of different points of view. Um, In particular, there's the connection with quantum mechanics leading to new ideas about quantum computation, quantum information, and to what extent do these pose a challenge and force us to rethink Turing's fundamental analysis of um, computation. So I want to um, discuss these issues, um, give uh, give some thoughts about them. I I will try to avoid going into uh, too many technical details but to convey some flavor of the ideas. So let's begin by reviewing the Turing machine model. We've already heard about it. Um, I expect we'll hear about it again but but it's uh, it's always a good thing to look at Um, in fact the details of the machine model although they are important they're important really as the end product of a process of reasoning which is the really interesting thing but before we get on to that process of reasoning um, that Turing made in his analysis let's just remind ourselves briefly of what this uh, model looks like. As as has already been said uh, we have um, the idea, what this is expressing, is the idea of what we can compute with with finite but unbounded resources. And that gives, therefore, a notion of what is computable in principle. The fact that the resources are unbounded is captured in the fact that we have a tape which may be of arbitrary length. Uh, at any finite stage, we'll only have used a finite portion of it. This is actually quite easy to relate to our sort of contemporary experience. Um, if we, you know, we know that memory is cheap, if we sort of compute and we sort of start to run out of disk space or whatever, we can go to uh, a local store or Amazon or whatever and get ourselves some more memory. We can extend the memory. Or it seems that if we sort of put things on the cloud and so on that uh, um, Google or wherever it is can always add an extra um, an extra uh, bunch of memory. And therefore, the, the, we don't encounter um, um, nowadays um, 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 tight bounds on memory usage although of course uh, we know that in principle um, uh, there there is a finite amount of memory available. Okay so this potential infinity is in the tape and then the thing that controls the computation is a purely finite state control. Um, And in more detail what this finite state control looks like is that um, uh, in a given state we're scanning one square of the tape And we have a simple finite set of rules which tell us depending on the symbol we encounter when we scan that square of the tape which action we can perform. And the actions are a very simple and primitive nature. Replace the symbol with another symbol and possibly move one square to the left or right on the tape. So these are very simple local actions and in principle this finite state control could be listed as a finite table. So all the, all the potential infinity, the unboundedness, is concentrated in the tape. So this is a precise formal model capturing the idea of finite but unbounded resources. It's by no means the only possible <coughs> model, in fact the experience has been, as has also already been mentioned, that one can, make, one can distill the same kind of ideas into many different models with different particular concrete details. Nevertheless, this one has been important for a number of reasons. Now as I said what's important about this model in the end is not the particular machine notion itself but the analysis that led to it and the point was that that, that Turing's um, derivation uh, essentially of this model from starting from an intuitive notion of computability was something that really convinced people at the time that this was a definitive analysis of what it was to be able to compute something in principle. So he starts in in the beautiful discussion he gives in in, in the 1936 paper on computable numbers uh, his his discussion which is not right at the beginning it sort of comes a bit later but it's it's the sort of real justification and, and undoubtedly it was surely the thought process by which he was led to that definition of the Turing machine that we just saw. So the way this goes is we start by thinking of how a human, as has already been said, would carry out a computation uh, following just definite procedures that don't require any leaps of insight or imagination. So he starts with this idea of the rule squares in a child's exercise book. Well, then then he says, well, well, we don't really need to worry about the two-dimensional nature of the pages of a book. We can put it all in a one-dimensional tape. Uh, and, and um, we can just think of a, a bunch of squares on this tape as corresponding to a line or a page of the book. And there are a great many arguments of this kind. Without loss of generality, we can, we can pare down to the essential ingredients that are needed to the computation, and which eventually lead us to the formal definition of Turing machines. So, for example, he argues that we only need finitely many distinct symbols. Uh, And the answer and and the sort of justification for this is that if we allowed infinitely many symbols uh, which we were writing in some finite with with finite sort of uh, you know on a macroscopic scale in a finite square in an exercise book then some of those symbols would have to be arbitrarily close to each other and we wouldn't be sure of being able to distinguish them. So essentially the finite resources also play into the idea that we can work only to a finite precision. We can only represent a finite amount of information at a given stage in a computation. And exactly similar considerations lead to his argument that we only need to consider finitely many distinct memory states, which we're thinking of perhaps as the memory states of a human computer. So however many memory states we feel we actually have, again the argument is if if we really wanted to consider infinitely many states, could we really do, I mean some of them would be very very close to each other and we couldn't safely and reliably distinguish them. So without loss of generality as a refrain in this argument and we come down to these these particular choices. And in a similar fashion uh, in each, so in other words we want to avoid smuggling some infinity in by the back door somewhere. We really want to follow through the idea that we're working with finite resources at each stage of the computation. So therefore in each state we can only scan a fixed portion of the tape and can only affect that portion. And therefore again without loss of generality, and what this really means is with these most primitive versions of these ideas we can simulate some apparently more generous scheme. So it's sufficient for the control to just scan a single square and to move just one square at a time because scanning a larger but still finite portion could be broken down into smaller steps of this kind. So in the end this this process of reasoning starting from these informal notions is distilled into the formal definition that we've seen of the Turing machine. And (coughs) there are some remarkable features of Turing's analysis Uh, One is just the sort of conceptual boldness at the time of bringing a machine into the universe of discourse of pure mathematics. A bolder step than probably is apparent to us now when we take computers for granted. Um, (coughs) Sort of somehow like the the, the clanking mechanicals breaking into the the sort of academy of pure maths or something like that. This is actually a point that was very nicely made in Andrew Hodges' biography of uh, Turing. Uh, which also of course played an important role in bringing Turing to the attention of a a wider public quite some years back now. Uh, So whereas the main tradition in logic which had given rise to various notions of computability as we were hearing about in earlier talks had been expressed in terms of formal logical systems, Turing was really talking about machines and of course this was to be the wave of things to come because computation was to pass into the domain of machines quite soon afterwards um, and the second point is uh, it, was con- uh, it was conceptually convincing as a definitive analysis of computability in a way that other attempts had not been this is a very important point um, if you look at books um, on computability actually many of the most striking results things like the unsolvability problems that we heard about this morning are of the form that such-and-such such is not computable now what is that statement really saying? Well, if you look at what is formally proved, what is formally proved is that we're saying it's not computable by something like that, alright? That, that's what one can show. But what we want to conclude is that it's not computable at all and if you gave me another gizmo, uh, I, if it was a computer, I still wouldn't be able to solve that problem with it. And that, relies, or that has to rely on some kind of evidence and actually one can argue that the most convincing form of evidence is this conceptual analysis that Turing gave and as we've heard indeed Turing's analysis made a deep impression on Gödel presumably the the greatest uh, logician uh, of the last century if not of uh, of all time who saw Turing as having achieved what he had previously thought could not be done a definitive mathematical analysis of an intuitive notion. a second kind of evidence is this confluence of notions, um, that it turned out that all reasonable notions led to the same result. But of course, one can ask, what is a reasonable notion? I mean, this is what then underlies the, the Church-Turing thesis that we were we were talking about. But um, reasonable really means it comes back to the fact that we don't smuggle any infinities in that we're dealing with computation using finite resources as soon as uh, as soon as we finite but unbounded resources if we bound the resources we in general get something less expressive than computability Uh, and on the other hand if we allow infinite resources then things that intuitively are not computable become computable you can sort of have an infinite table where you could look up the answers Another remarkable feature coming from this work is that bounds to the scope of computation were set by this work before the world of computers, automatic computers, uh, really got going. That's almost unique among technologies, although maybe as far as uh, space travel and so on, I mean even before start, well I mean you know, maybe we're going to uh, make advances in physics but maybe we think we have limits there with faster than light travel. Um, And in fact the quality of Turing's analysis, the fact that he sort of analyzed ruthlessly and remorselessly down to the the sort of essential ingredients following from this idea of uh, only using finite resources is shown in the continuing use of the Turing machine model in computational complexity. Whereas other models um, such as uh, sort of random access machine models which on the face of it look closer to... um, um, Uh, what we actually, the computers that we actually use. Now those models lead to the same notion of computability if you don't sort of try and quantify resources. But when we come to complexity, it's quite easy to smuggle assumptions about which operations you have and so forth, uh, which look innocent enough but actually have a disturbing and unwanted effect on the way we account for complexity. In the Turing model, everything is explicitly accounted for. He made things explicit to the max. And that means that the Turing machine model is still one of the robust models for discussions of computational complexity. So for all these reasons, for a long time following that work of Turing, it seemed that his analysis was set in stone. There was simply nothing more to be said. But over the last, um, perhaps, however long it is, couple of decades, uh, and increasingly, and, and, and sort of still increasing at the current time, there have been first stirrings and now quite a vivid... Uh, in my opinion, not always, um, well, I, d- I don't agree with all the points that are made, but, but certainly a vivid, ongoing debate, and it's a matter of discussion again. In fact, people try, among other things, to prove the Church Turing thesis, at least from more primitive assumptions or more explicit assumptions, to try and turn the intuitive line of argument we saw in Turing's analysis into a mathematical proof from some kind of uh, more explicit assumptions as one example and also there have been various claims that it's possible to perform hypercomputation and go beyond the bounds set by Turing on computability. So indeed I want to discuss some challenges to the Turing model and in particular I want to focus on two different kinds of challenge to the exhaustiveness of Turing's analysis. So I mean I don't personally think that his analysis of what you can compute with finite but unbounded means can be faulted, I think he got it right. Um, But um, the question is, did he he say everything there was to be said? And I think there are two interesting ways, among others, where it's clear that more needs to be said and where there's ongoing and active work. The first one is um, that in the age of the internet and the web and so on, our conception of what computation is and why we do it has changed enormously. So then we can ask, is Turing's analysis still definitive? And the second one um, is that (coughs) Turing analyzed computation in terms of operations that are performed by a human using paper and pencil. Incidentally, this issue of the the anthropomorphic element in Turing's work, in in my opinion, should not be overstated. Uh, We know from Turing's computing machinery and intelligence that he didn't place human intelligence in an exalted position in the scheme of things. we already know that, that computers can, can compute in the sense of formal Turing computability a lot more than we ever will be able to ourselves as people unaided. Um, so um, I mean there was a point for where he was starting with the informal notion of computability and actually the, um, the term computer was in common use at the time that he wrote as a person performing computations. Um, so uh, I think it was a natural starting point but I don't see the, the, the sort of human aspect as, as playing an essential role in his argument. Now according to Feynman, uh, who had some uh, lectures on computation, which among other things was the place where the idea of quantum computing was first mooted. So according to uh, Feynman, Turing's analysis, well uh, this, is, this is a rough quote, I didn't find the exact quote. I think it gives the spirit Uh, Turing's analysis was perfect except that he thought he understood paper and pencil in other words um, there's a background physical theory because after all the activity of writing things in the process uh, on squares of paper and so on is a physical process in the end and one is tacitly assuming classical physics or some version of classical physics does the modern understanding of non-classical physics change the rules of the game so these are the two points that i want to discuss so let's begin with what computing is and how we think of it so if we cast our minds back to the early days <coughs> computing did have a very narrow interface to the rest of the world there were these enormous very hot very expensive machines served by a small kind of uh, a priesthood of uh, highly trained acolytes who sort of feed information in on paper tapes Um, uh, or punched cards and sort of read read off reams of uh, output from from a printer. Um, So the the focus was on the computation from the initial input data and then producing uh, the final output. And as we know, uh, the way that computing systems work has evolved quite a lot since then. So we have now, we, we really compute usefully in a highly interconnected fashion. Um, So we we sit with our computers and we really rely on there being loads of other computations running completely autonomously of us pursuing their own ends uh, and things that we can uh, link up to in various ways, things that that we never thought of, that could never have been thought of when our system was programmed, That nevertheless we want our system to interact with. This is a whole different way of thinking about software. Also there's a huge amount of stuff out there of course and it's all running asynchronously communicating with each other distributed global pervasive uh, parallel all these all these properties apply now if we come back to the basic question about what computation is the question Turing was answering which comes out of these classical mathematical roots that we've been hearing about is which functions or numbers I mean Turing's original paper was called on computable numbers but really the more general question is which functions or if you prefer which sets are computable Um, and this is exactly something that distills from that early model of computing the narrow interface we feed the data in do the computation and right at the end some output is produced and the objects we're asking the question about numbers sets functions are inherited from mathematics and logic they're already there Uh, on the shelf, available for use when Turing did his work. Of course, to say which of these things are computable requires some additional structure. It requires the idea of not just of looking at the function or the set in isolation, but it requires the idea of an algorithmic process for computing this set or function. And of course, that then relies on a characterization of which are the algorithmic processes for computing functions, and that's exactly what Turing provided, as uh, as we've just seen. But um, once we start to talk of processes um, and once we start to think about modern computation then we see that, there's, that they become a subject in their own right and in fact computer science, a great deal of computer science over the last few decades has been concerned with a broader question which is what is a process in general. And let's remember that the purpose of much of the software we routinely run nowadays is not to compute a function in any obvious sense or in any useful sense, but to exhibit some behavior. Um, so if you think of communication protocols, browsers, iTunes, Facebook, Twitter, they're not really about computing functions, are they? We ask the question, what function does the internet compute? That's not, I mean, it doesn't have a useful answer. Rather, um, if you look at what these, these really produce behaviours of, kind, of a kind that we find useful in various ways, and of course in the fine structure of how they produce those behaviours there are, of course, it's all built out of algorithmic processes. But the algorithmic processes and the, the functions that are computed to do little bits of uh, specific tasks serve a larger purpose which is not itself described in terms of computing functions. And that raises a whole bunch of questions. What is a process? When are two processes equivalent? So the situation is very, and and in this case, there is no established mathematical theory of what processes are to tell us the answers to these questions. Whereas there was, of course, established theory to tell us what a function is, a set of input-output pairs, however one wants to think about it, and when two functions are equal and so on. Off-the-shelf mathematics answered those questions. There's no such off-the-shelf mathematics for these broader questions about processes and a lot of what computer science has been about the last few decades has been trying to find the mathematics that will answer these questions. Well, so um, I'm just going to try and give a flavour of how one might think about things not in more familiar mathematical terms but in process terms essentially through uh, a sort of uh, something that I hope will give some intuition. Uh, avoiding uh, any detailed formalism Uh, and then we'll we'll, we'll come back to the question of where we stand in relation to this broader agenda of understanding things in process terms in relation to Turing's analysis. So the little thing I'm going to present is a sort of microcosm of uh, this move from um, sort of static things like sets and functions, pure mathematical things to something that uh, has a dynamic behavior like a process. Uh, is in terms of rethinking something as basic as the classical notion of a tautology. We also heard about tautologies earlier, A or not A. Um, so as an alternative to the standard static view of logic, uh, where this is essentially something with no content, I'm just going just to give a sort of little uh, impression of what it might mean to move to a process version of things, I'll suggest a dynamic way of thinking about tautology. So firstly, a quick caricature of the classic notion of tautology. It's raining or it is not raining. As we know in in our own wonderful British weather, um, uh, it can be hard to tell. Uh, at any rate, the, the the static idea of a tautology is not very interesting thing. It's it's something that simply a or not a simply fails to exclude any state of affairs. It purely has a kind of descriptive force, and in the case of a tautology, it doesn't seem to describe anything at all, which itself raises a, a sort of little question about what uh, what we're doing when we perform logical inferences. How in what sense are we gaining information? At any rate. Um, That is that is the standard view that one gets from a logic textbook, this kind of purely propositional thing about truth and falsity and so on. What could possibly be a a sort of dynamic view of this? So what I want to suggest is the following picture um, where we can see logic and in a sense tautology, uh, a tautology of a kind but now a dynamic tautology in play, in um, the answer to quite a nice question which is how could we get to beat a grandmaster at chess? Um, I don't have time to sort of read a lot of chess books and get good at chess so I want to beat a grandmaster just by the power of logic. That sounds a tall order but you see here's my, here's my idea, here's my trick. I'm going to arrange to play the grandmaster, um, uh, Garry Kasparov who was the victim of course of a computer chess program as we may remember a few years ago um, uh, and, and we arranged to play him in two games maybe by correspondence, Um, one as white and one as black. And we also arrange things so that um, the game where we play first is where we play as black. Okay, So um, how's this going to work? Well, um, so we eagerly await our first sort of move uh, sent in the post in our correspondence game and we see what Kasparov does in his opening move in this game okay what are we going to do now well we're going to come to this game and play the same move because we're white all right then we see what Kasparov does when he comes back at us here and then we're going to go back here and make that response and we keep doing that right Um, so we end up playing the same game twice but once as white and once as black in fact we're playing Kasparov off against himself so we just kind of sit back and uh um, so whoever, who, whoever wins white or black in this game well we've, we've won one of those games or even if it's a draw then we've sort of you know, so we've um, so, and this is, this is a purely logical structure um, which, uh, by which we, we get this, this effect in this game uh, incidentally before we um, discuss this further let me just mention that this actually happened in history in the 1920s uh, with the grandmaster Alekhine. And there were a couple of uh, tricksters who tried this game on him with uh, correspondence uh, playing by correspondence but he spotted what they were doing and um, so what he did was he offered a very tempting sacrifice in one of the uh, one of the games so of course the player who was again got very excited I mean here was a chance to get one over on the great Alekine so he he took the offered uh, he offered peace, broke the symmetry, and then, of course, Alec was able to quickly finish them both <laughs> off. So, so in real life, uh, you know, we can't uh, rely entirely on logic. But this, this idea, I mean, it seems like a cheap trick, but it's actually, uh, it's quite rich, and there are many features that could be developed into a kind of process theory that does relate to logic. First thing is, it is, as we've said, a kind of dynamic tautology, which also has a certain linearity or resource sensitivity built into it it's important here that we have one game where we play as white and one where we play as black if for example we had um, two games where we played as uh, as uh, white then we wouldn't be able to maintain that same symmetry if you think about it um, we could uh, let's say two, uh, two games let's say two games that we play as black then we could start as before but then Kasparov could move to the other game and make a different opening move and we'd have sort of already used this board here to, do, to, to track the first game and, and we wouldn't be able to maintain the same strategy. This is a linear tautology. And you can see that there's a sense in which there's some principle of conservation of information flow going in here. The same information comes in and goes out and by sort of keeping it matched in both cases we, we sort of uh, maintain this logical conclusion as to the outcome. And we can also see the power of this simple idea of copying information from one place to another uh, it turns out that this is a sort of, really we can express all computation in terms of simple copying operations of this kind and there's even as you can see a kind of primitive geometry here in that in some sense we're making the same thing happen in two different places the two game boards correspond to two different places where um, computation is happening if you like I'll just stretch this a little bit further by showing how chaining of inferences or composition of functions can also be interpreted dynamically just to uh, sort of uh, build on this a little bit. So now we have a situation where we have two players uh, and each of them has a certain kind of interface to the world which where they can interact so we can think of this as different ports or different subparts of the system where they can interact with their environment And the idea is that we want to combine these to plug these together so each of them is sort of expressing some potential way of interacting with their environment which we can think of as some kind of computation of a function if you like Um, and we want to actually plug them together and see how they interact with each other so this is taking the again the logical idea of chaining inferences or the mathematical idea of composing functions and understanding it in in a sort of process or dynamic way and so we get this kind of picture of the game that arises where um, we, um, we do plug these together. So the idea is uh, Gary here has a strategy for, you know, if he gets these moves by white here he'll respond here or he may perhaps respond in this game and so forth. And similarly for, so we, our copycat strategy was itself something of this form. And what we do is we make this part of Gary's in- interface where he's playing white match with this part of the other player's interface. Notice where he's playing uh, black, when well, he should be playing black. Um, actually, no, Gary's playing black here and, and, and um, this one's playing white. So each matches what the, other, what, uh, what, the, what the other expects to see the environment doing. And now if we come in from the outside, as we might have been over here, make a move, then this player may respond in the other game. And this will be now in this middle part where the interaction is happening between these two systems. And what we see here is that um, each of the players can play against each other, each becomes part of the other's environment. Um, And um, so we get a more complex behavior, um, and uh, the overall effect can be be understood as something like um, what we get by composing computation. So this is a fundamental building block, Either of logical inferences or of building more complex computations, and here we see a kind of process view of it. Okay, well, um, so I hope that gives a little flavour of how a whole lot of structure enters when we start to think about processes and not just about functions. And I want to make a point about the extreme difference between this process view of things and what it leads to, and what it has led to in computer science after several decades of research, and what we've already heard about uh, has been the fate of notions of computability, which is that for at least for basic computability over, over discrete data, the natural numbers and so on, there's been this remarkable confluence of notions, one of the main pieces of evidence in favour of the Church-Turing hypothesis. So um, we, it, it turns out all reasonable notions lead to the same notion of computability. We have a definitive calculus of functions, the lambda calculus, which, is, which has been referred to, and although it may have been bad-mouthed by Gödel, it's turned out that the lambda calculus has been enormously useful in uh, computer science as a calculus of functions and as a basis for a lot of modern programming languages. By contrast, there's been an active research intensive active research on concurrency and processes for the really the past five decades in computer science, a great deal of important work has emerged from that, but one can't help noticing that there have been literally hundreds of different process calculi, different answers to the question of when two processes are equivalent, different logics for reasoning about Uh, processes and so on. And certainly um, it's not the case that any definitive calculus for concurrency has emerged. One of the great figures in this research, uh, Robin Milner, uh, a large part of his career was essentially a quest for what the lambda calculus of concurrency is. And he um, I think finally concluded that um, this was not something that could be found in the same terms as had been the case, so to speak, in the fortunate a much more restricted situation of the lambda calculus as a calculus for functions. And as a result what we have is, is, is not that there's a doubt about the Church Turing thesis for processes, there's not even a way of formulating it that seems plausible. If you think of all the different possible ways that processes could interact with each other, the different ways they could run in parallel and synchronize and run asynchronously and so on, there's no scheme that Uh, even seems likely to generate all the ways that one could think of, of expressing that. And that's uh, in very striking contrast to the situation that we have in computability. One can speak, and one does speak in computer science, of the next 700 syndrome. This comes from a classic paper by another pioneer of computing, Peter Landin, written in 1966 notice, called the next 700 programming languages. Now now, uh, what that means is that in 1966 there had already been, there was a survey a little before then where, which had listed 700 programming languages but there have been a hell of a lot more since then, I can tell you. And it's not just a matter of superficial differences between notations, very many different concepts have been put forward, notions of concurrency, object-oriented, nimble, agile, um, um, many, many things A great bestiary of different phenomena. Um, And we don't have a sort of uh, the same kind of comprehensive view of, uh, same kind of definitive analysis of what the possibilities are in this much richer setting. So the question is can we find some version of a church Turing thesis for processes. Will we eventually find such a thing or is there some intrinsic reason why that isn't going to work in the same kind of way? And I'm pretty sure that it's a much harder problem and it will need a new Turing or possibly several Turing's in order to to address it. So let's come to the bottom line on that point. So the question where I, I'd like to consider is, is there a real challenge to Turing's analysis coming from this much broader view of computation as interaction? And in my view, I mean, some people have even suggested that the, in a sense, this view of computation as interaction contradicts Turing's thesis. I don't think that's right. I think Turing's analysis, in the terms in which we expressed it, what you can, which functions, you can compute or other mathematical objects you can compute with finite but unbounded resources is as impeccable now as when it was first formulated. However, the point is that there are more general questions that can be asked and which have still, I think, to be satisfactorily answered. So, um, so it does need to be broadened and refined and that will still be a work for uh, future generations, I think. Okay, so the second uh, challenge I'd like to consider in the uh, remaining time is uh, coming from physics. As we've said, actual computational processes are physical things. They happen in time, and the resources they use are ultimately physical resources. And as such, they're subject to the constraints of physical theory, and perhaps they can even benefit from some of the wilder possibilities thrown up by modern physics. Now, one way in which one can go in that direction uses ideas from general relativity. Uh, And and indeed, it's it's been sort of rigorously shown that if if you're in a certain class of space-times in the sense of general relativity, and you happen to be lurking by a black hole or maybe even a wormhole, you can perform computations which go strictly beyond Turing computability. And there's serious uh, sort of mathematical work that goes into... um, some of these arguments I, um, Well, um, I think most people are not persuaded that there's uh, I mean, I think there, there's certainly some interesting issues about space-times and information and so on. whether I mean I don't think we're going to be computing in black holes anytime soon. Um, so I, I, I don't see this as uh, likely to uh, pose any imminent challenge to our current views of computation. But much more realistically there's the flourishing subject of quantum information and computation which many people are actively pursuing uh, and making a certain amount of headway with although we're still quite some way from a, a real quantum computer so uh what i want to do is again give a little bit of a flavor of some of the quantum ideas without going into details and then just finish up by sort of saying something about how uh, Turing's analysis stand in relation to this current work. So let me, uh, not much time left, so let me just say a a few things um, by way of either introduction or review of um, the features of the quantum realm that that lead to something different from what we know classically. So the first thing is that in a sense um, quantum mechanics is very good for the idea of of, of the, the universe as a computer because it tells us that at a fundamental level we do encounter discrete quantities. In classical physics, quantities are generally you know, speed, uh, position, momentum, and so on. These are continuous variables. But quantum mechanics tells us that at a very fundamental level, we actually encounter discrete quantities. So in the Stern-Gerlach experiment, we send a stream of uh, atoms in a magnetic field, and instead of seeing a smear of uh, displacements we just get this uh, quantized effect, Uh, if it's the right kind of atoms we just get two possible positions where they can end up reflecting the uh, whether they have um, in modern terminology spin up or spin down in the measured direction. So discrete quantities live at the fundamental physical level in some sense bits and the data digital data uh, uh, actually exist at a fundamental physical level but these are not classical bits these are qubits, quantum bits and there are some important differences so classical bits have lots of properties you know bit registers or whatever have lots of properties that we take for granted and you know coming back to the paper and pencils point so obviously they have two different possible values you can read the value without affecting the contents of the register you can make as many copies as you like you can perform any data transformations on a bit register that you like the content uh, on the one hand, uh, offer a richer set of possibilities, but on the other hand, um, have a lot of uh, sort of uh, constraints on their behavior that come from the physical scenario in which they arise. So rather than having uh, two distinct values, rather they have, as it were, two extreme points they can take, but, but actually they can be in superpositions of zero and one. They can be a bit zero and a bit one. Um, bit was a bad choice of word to use, I apologize. <laughs> it could be partly zero and partly one, so uh, strictly with a sort of two-dimensional vectors, complex vector space. So we can think of them as a very nice representation as point, uh, points on a real sphere, taking account of uh, normalization. And then we have measurements. We can choose a direction for our spin measurement, as we saw in the Stern-Gerlach experiment, and then for a given qubit, st- we can measure it to be spin up or spin down in the given direction that we've chosen but notice that rather than having a unique idea of zero and one we also have a choice of direction on which to measure spin so again we have infinitely many different choices of direction Um, and each time we do make such a measurement Um, there will be one of two answers spin up or spin down in the same spirit as the the Stern-Gerlach experiment that we just saw but which answer we get is no longer a determinate thing the state itself was some mixture of 0 and 1 so all we can say is with a certain probability we'll get one result and with the complementary probability we'll get the other not only that not only is the outcome uncertain but performing the measurement will have uh, an irreversible side effect it will change the state that we're measuring change the state of the qubit that we're measuring will actually collapse down to be the very thing that it measured so in a sense the measurement the answer to the measurement forces the the the, the qubit into um, into the state that corresponds to the result that we get and there's also a restriction on the kinds of transformations that we can perform on qubits they have to be reversible now we can't we can't perform arbitrary operations so this is a very mixed Bag of goods, some richer possibilities, but also some constraints. And one might wonder if anything useful can be done with this model. Just in slightly more detail, here is a sort of picture of measurement. Here's our actual state sitting somewhere here, a mixture of zero and one. Here's our direction of spin that we're measuring on. And in a sense, the the sort of the, the geometry here tells us that the angle. That the actual state makes with the direction of spin determines the probability that we get one result or the other. And this business about the, the sort of so called collapse, the, the side effect of measurement, is that the state gets projected onto the um, uh, direction that we get as the outcome of the measurement. So, this all seems like bad news then, but nevertheless, there are new things, new possibilities that arise once we start to make use of these features. So in particular, once we go to multiple qubit registers, then the effects of entanglement start to appear. So here is one of the basic examples. This is a Bell state. So now we're looking at a two-particle state. um, And and the point is, in, in, in this quantum mechanical formalism, rather than this just decomposing into the state of the first particle and the state of the second particle, they can be inherently entangled in such a way that correlations... Uh, are created between them so this is a state which has the property so it's a two particle state Alice has her particle Bob has his particle if Alice measures her particle she may get zero or one as the result but if she gets zero then this will collapse the whole state down so that if Bob were to measure his particle he would also get zero and Bob may be very very far away this is the, um, the sort of remarkable feature of entanglement and similarly, if Alice were to get a one, this would also force uh, the state down to this thing, so that if Bob were to measure, he would also get a one. This is what Einstein called spooky action at a distance, and it's something that's real. It's something that's been experimentally demonstrated. And. Um, <coughs> It led on to seminal insights such as Bell's Theorem that there is this essential non-locality, this essential effect of entanglement that one part of a system can affect what happens somewhere far away with another. So let me just mention one information processing task which seems remarkable and which can be done as a result of this kind of entanglement. So this is a new possibility in information processing arising from these new kinds of physical phenomena. And this is the idea of quantum teleportation so that's a by the way a great name i mean it's a sort of a beam me up scotty idea now and it has the same feature as uh, teleportation in star trek which is that so it is again a, a kind of making information that was in one place turn up somewhere else but it is important that you don't end up with two copies right if scotty beams you up then you're all up and there's nothing left of you back here otherwise there'd be two of you and you'd have to have a fight over who had dinner or whatever Um, And that's going to be true of uh, teleportation here. So here is Alice and Bob who may be far, far away but they share something like this bell state that we just saw as a kind of shared resource and this entanglement creates a kind of channel between them that lets them perform some remarkable effects. So in particular Alice may get some qubit that she knows nothing about and this qubit could be anywhere on the sphere, it's sort of encoding a continuous amount of data in terms of which mixture of 0 and 1 it is but it turns out using the ideas of quantum mechanics that Alice can perform a local measurement involving her part of the entangled pair and this unknown qubit Um, and, and because it's a two qubit measurement so each part is either spin up or spin down there'll be four possible outcomes and just by picking up the phone and telling Bob which of the four possible outcomes occurred Bob is then able to do a little sort of correction to his qubit and magically his qubit now has the same state that Alice's unknown input qubit originally had. That's a remarkable thing, because with two bits of classical information, we've managed to create a perfect replication of a continuous amount of data, an arbitrary position on the sphere that happened over here with Alice, over here with Bob, far, far away. And this idea of teleportation is a basic building block, firstly in various schemes for quantum computation, also for quantum key distribution and other things in quantum uh, cryptography. OK, I should finish, I guess, so I'll uh, skip a little discussion here and just come to my uh, concluding point, which is, is there a quantum challenge to Turing's analysis? So certainly as we've seen, new phenomena arise from quantum mechanics which require refinement of our views on the scope and limit of computation. The general consensus though is that Turing's analysis of what is in principle computable survives unscathed. There have been certain claims that it's possible using quantum computing to go beyond Turing computability, but (laughs) the consensus is that really this this doesn't happen, and that's right from uh, the original seminal work by Deutsch. It seems that there are certain tasks that can be performed more efficiently using quantum resources. The most famous being Shor's algorithm for prime factoring, a polynomial time algorithm where no classical polynomial time algorithm for this task is known. But again, however, the consensus is that although there will be some quantum advantage, it will not be sufficient to close the P versus NP gap, which of course we don't absolutely know to be a gap, as has already been mentioned. Um, in other words, people don't think it would be possible to compute NP complete problems in polynomial time with a quantum computer. Uh, that, this is in, in the web of unknowledge, of the, of our, which is our general state with uh, complexity issues. But that's, that's what people believe for pretty good reasons. And just to say something about cryptography and security, as we've seen, current schemes which rely on the assumed hardness of computational problems such as prime factoring would be threatened if somebody did build a quantum computer because they could run Shaw's algorithm on it and do fast prime factoring. That's one of the main reasons why there's been quite a lot of funding of research on quantum (laughs) computing I guess. On the other hand quantum mechanics in some sense provides the remedy to this problem itself because as we've just said the, the effects of quantum mechanics can be used to provide schemes for quantum key distribution, which don't rely on the assumed hardness of problems like prime factoring. We can use the uncertainty principle or teleportation and entanglement to um, make uh, to, to to allow a detection of an intruder and to guarantee that um, uh, um, to guarantee confidentiality of uh, to guarantee soundness of a quantum key distribution scheme. So uh, the basic physics gives us an information-theoretic guarantee which doesn't rely on, uh, on algorithmic hardness of problems. So um, And by the way, quantum uh, cryptography is considerably more advanced in terms of actual f- fielded applications than, than quantum computing, which is still at the level of uh, people in labs building systems with very small numbers of bits. Various banks are using quantum key distribution on a regular basis. So, um, just to conclude, exciting new developments in computation are changing our views of its scope and possibilities. This is certainly leading us to refine the classical notions of computation. However, I would say overall, Turing's analysis remains remarkably robust and uh, a testament to his uh, pioneering vision and insight. Okay, thanks.